As you find your way to your seats, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 10 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 10. Now before we get started, I would, uh, just wanted to say thank you to all who participated in the fall festival uh, yesterday. We had to do a little bit of pivoting and a little bit of uh, changing direction because of the rain, but I think it turned out as best as we could have hoped uh, as many came and received uh, the blessing of fresh squeezed uh, apple cider and funnel cakes and produce, and uh, it was a great way of blessing our neighborhood. So thank you all who participated in that. As we come to our text for this morning, I was reminded uh, about something that happened in our home a few weeks ago. Our family came home to a rather disturbing discovery. My oldest daughter went downstairs and she let out a horrifying scream. A few moments later, a second scream came from my second oldest daughter. Something was wrong, and so I yelled down to them, What's going on down there? And they replied, there's a bat in the house. <laughs> now, it's not uncommon for my children to attempt to trick me. <laughs> so I wasn't really quick to believe them. I went downstairs to prove them wrong, and I opened up the door to my daughter's room, expecting them to say, gotcha. However, when I opened the door, indeed, there was a bat flying right at my head. I jumped back quickly and slammed the door. Now, without getting into all the details about how we removed the bat from our home, which included my son and I both wielding lacrosse sticks and donning safety goggles and makeshift shields from a trash can top, I will say that throughout the experience, we continue to ask this question, is it gone yet? You see, we continually tried to coax this bat outside, but for whatever reason, he wanted to fly around our house. And to evade us, he hid inside of a boot, he crawled under a doorway, he perched on a doorframe right above my head as I was peeking around the corner. Finally, we trapped him in an entranceway with the outside door open and decided that this is how he would go out. And I assume he flew away, but we never saw it happen. For the rest of the night, we all felt like this bat might reappear at any moment. We were fairly sure that he was gone, but we couldn't be sure he wouldn't just pop out again. And I'm sure that all of you have had an experience similar to this. Maybe you had a rodent scurrying around your home, and he ran under the fridge, and you never found him. And for the next week, you just had this feeling like he was going to pop out again. During the COVID pandemic, we were continually asking, is it gone yet? Will it ever be over? Sure, it's going to be over by fall of 2020. I mean, fall of 2021. I mean, fall of 2022. Eventually, we just didn't believe that it was ever going to be gone. Now, on a more serious note, I've counseled and prayed with many who have endured a cancer diagnosis and treatment. They went into remission but continually feared that the cancer wasn't truly gone and it would come back. Others struggle with bouts of depression or anxiety and fear. And they're worried that when the next hardship 
our trigger occurs, they are going to spiral down the same path. This fear is intensified when you are the one who has perpetuated the offense. You lost your temper with your children, and you scared them, and you scared yourself. You lied, and now you have to keep up the falsehood so you don't lose your reputation. You were drawn into looking at that website you know you shouldn't. You got physical with a friend of yours. You drank too much and decided to drive home anyway. You struggle to believe the Word of God and often come to the very precipice of abandoning your faith. Each of us struggle and fight a multitude of different sins. And when the hardship of the struggle passes, we are often left asking, is it truly gone? Has it truly been taken away? Or is it going to appear at the most inopportune time? Our passage for this morning makes a tremendous claim, one that's almost difficult to believe, but one that is clearly stated. You see, the author to the Hebrews is contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant, and he makes the claim that under the new covenant, sin has been removed, that it is gone. Under the old covenant, there was no assurance that sin was truly gone. It could be right around the corner waiting to take you down. But under the new covenant, the work of Christ means that the guilt of sin has been completely removed. It has been cleansed. And there need no longer be any sacrifice. And while we must continue to fight sin in this life, what we will see is that all who trust in Jesus Christ can have great assurance that the guilt of their sin has been completely removed, never to return again. So hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you now on this day. Lord, we come gathering from out of the world, a world that is filled with such 
hardship and sin. A world in which we continue to live in anxiety about what is around the corner. Oh God, we pray that through the truth and the comfort of Your Word, that we would have great assurance of the finality of the work of Jesus Christ, that sin has been removed. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Throughout the Word of God, we hear this continual teaching that God's heart is for obedience and not sacrifice. It was in our call to worship for this morning. And we also see when King Saul made a sacrifice without Samuel the priest, he was rebuked. Samuel said to King Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. You see, ultimately, sacrifice is not what the Lord desires from His people. Unlike the false gods of this world, He doesn't need sacrifice. He is not waiting to be fed or to be given a drink, for it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. So then how do we understand the central place of sacrifice in the Word of God, both the Old Covenant and the New? Why has the Lord ordained sacrifice if His greater desire is obedience? Well, if we look at our text for this morning, what we see is that sacrifices were designed to take away sin. It was to perfect those who would draw near to God. However, sacrifice is only necessary where there is sin. Ultimately, the Lord's desire is that one would obey, not that he would disobey and then offer a sacrifice. Nevertheless, the people of Israel were abusing this sacrificial system. They were treating it as though it were a payment plan. If I happen to sin, no big deal. I'll merely offer a sacrifice. I know that the Lord desires that I would tell the truth, but if I lie, it's okay. I can just bring an offering. I know that I should be forgiving, but if not, I can give God a grain offering and things will be just fine. Unfortunately, this is how many of us today believe that sin is addressed. We know that we are not to sin, but the Lord will take our sacrifice of money or time, or prayers, or good deeds, or personal suffering as a payment for our transgressions. We believe that we can pay off God for our sin. But the Lord never intended sacrifice to replace obedience. Rather, sacrifice was to highlight the need for obedience. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. We, we read here, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Now, the author continues to build his case for the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And here he makes many points towards that argument. And it's important for us to pay attention to this. Not that I'm fearful that any of us here are going to go back to Old Testament sacrificial system, but rather that each and every one of us has within us a desire to return to something that is in a way reflective of the old covenant system and not trusting in Christ alone. First, he explains that the old covenant is a shadow of the new covenant. The new covenant is the substance. It is the reality and the old is derivative of the new. When I was young, one of the projects that we did in elementary school was the silhouette. I don't know if they do the silhouette anymore, but I know everybody in my generation did this. You sit down with a light shining on your face and it would cast a shadow on the wall of your profile. And a friend of yours would then trace that profile out on a black piece of paper and you would cut it out and paste it on a white piece of paper and you would have this silhouette, this profile of your face. It didn't give you depth or detail, but you could get a sense of the person. And the author is explaining that the old covenant is like one of these silhouettes. It's based on the reality, it's based on the substance, but it is not the true reality. It's just a shadow. Second, the shadow nature of the old covenant is reflected in the weakness of the sacrifices offered He says the sacrifice could not make anyone perfect. People were still in their sin. He argues that if the sacrifices actually accomplished their purpose, there would have been no need to make continual offering. There wouldn't have to be one sacrifice after another, after another, after another, because sin would be removed. Third, instead of cleansing from sin... The Old Covenant sacrifices were present to remind people of their sin. You see, when an animal was offered under the Old Covenant, the blood that was shed would not remove the guilt of sin. Rather, it was a picture of the requirement of death that accompanied sin. As each year passed, the continual sacrifices displayed that sin had not been removed. Because if it had been removed, there would have been no need to continue to sacrifice. You might think of the Old Covenant sacrifices as medication that deals with symptoms and not disease. Let's say that you have a bad knee, and every morning you wake up and you take ibuprofen to help with the pain. But when the medication wears off, your knee still hurts. You see, the ibuprofen acts as a reminder each morning that there is an underlying problem that needs to be dealt with, that something needs to be healed. If the medicine actually fixed the problem, you wouldn't need to take it every morning. Maybe you need a little rehab or maybe you need complete knee replacement. But if you have to take pain medication every morning, it's a sign the problem is not resolved. And the same is true of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. They were not dealing with the underlying issue of sin. They were merely reminding the people that they had a problem with sin. 
And if you are continually seeking to offer some sort of sacrifice, some sort of payment to God for your sin, those sacrifices will not deal with the sin. They are just a reminder of your own guilty conscience. Fourth, animal sacrifice cannot deal with human sin. Verse 4 says very clearly, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why is this? Well, first, because animal blood cannot take the place of human blood. A bull cannot die for my sin or for your sin. Human sin requires a human death. Second, because the sacrifice of an animal is not rooted in obedience. The animal is an unwilling sacrifice. You see, the bulls that were led to the altar of sacrifice, believe it or not, they didn't know what they were doing. And if they did know what they were doing, I'm sure that they would not have willingly submitted themselves to this process. So often we see to deal with our sin by sacrifice, to offer something to God. But what this is teaching us is that there is nothing, there is no sacrifice that we can make on our behalf that will remove the guilt of sin. Everything falls short of what is required. And so as we continue to seek out to make sacrifices to deal with our sin, it actually points to the reality that our sin has not been taken away. So how then is sin taken away? If it's not taken away through animal sacrifices, if it's not taken away through our own sacrifice of time and money and suffering, how is it that it will be removed? How do we know that it's truly gone? Well, the first thing that we see is that sin is taken away through a prepared sacrifice. Look at verses 5 through 7. There we read, consequently, so that that word consequently is connecting to the fact that sin is not dealt with through animal sacrifice, so something had to happen. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now here, the author is quoting Psalm 40. And what he is showing is that the Lord has prepared the sacrifice that he requires for us. Again, it is reiterate that the Lord's desire is not for these animal sacrifices and grain offerings. Rather, His desire is for a sacrifice that will actually remove sin. Here we see that the Lord has provided what is needed, that He has prepared a sacrifice. He has ordained this sacrifice. Psalm 40 is a prophecy of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God was not preparing an animal but rather His own Son. You see, the sacrifice that would remove sin had to be that of a man, but also of God Himself. 
The sacrifice had to be of the line of Adam because it was Adam's children. It was us. It was humanity that is under the curse of sin. And so the sacrifice had to come from this line. But the sacrifice also had to be without blemish. For if Jesus had any sin, then he could not die for us. He would have to die for his own sin. He could not offer his blood on behalf of someone else if he was under the same punishment. And finally, the sacrifice had to be of such worth and value that it could remove the sin, not just of one person, but of all who place their faith in Him. And what this psalm teaches is that God prepared such a sacrifice. Before the foundation of the world, a covenant was made between the persons of the Godhead. The Father promised to ordain salvation. The Son promised to accomplish salvation. And the Spirit promised to apply salvation. And in the fullness of time, the Father sent forth His Son into the world to join Himself to the human race by the power of the Spirit. Fully God, fully man, united in one person. It's a mystery beyond our comprehension that in the person of Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to God. This is the sacrifice that has been prepared. Even before the world was created, God was working to prepare a sacrifice to take away your sin. He was planning and He was fashioning this sacrifice so that it would be the perfect answer to our brokenness. As you can imagine, life gets pretty busy in a family of seven. We have school and sports and friends. We have church activities, work obligations, chores and doctor's appointments. There's always something going on. And so if we're going to eat a healthy meal at home, it takes a lot of planning. April, my wife, usually makes a meal plan out at the end of the week, orders the groceries on the Walmart app over the weekend, and picks them up on Monday. And then she gets the meal prepared in the morning or afternoon. And once the evening comes, the meal is finally cooked. As the meal is finishing, we have to set the table, get drinks, get forks, and all that goes into it. We pause before we eat and we say a prayer, and then finally, we eat the meal. But for the meal to be ready to eat, there are all of these intentional steps that have to be taken. Without preparation and planning and execution, there is going to be no meal for us. And what the Word of God is teaching us is that the sacrifice that is required to remove sin is a sacrifice that has been meticulously planned and prepared to meet our specific need. Salvation didn't just magically happen. God intentionally planned and prepared and offered a sacrifice that would take away your sin. The apostle Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was delivered up, that he was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. How do you know that your sin has truly been taken away? How do you know that it has been decisively dealt with? You look to the plan of God and you trust that He is the one who planned and prepared the true sacrifice 
that takes away our sin. You see, sin cannot be removed by our sacrifices. However, God has prepared a sacrifice for us, even His own Son, Jesus Christ. And the next thing we see is that Jesus Christ was a willing sacrifice for us. Look at verses 8 through 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How do you know for certain that your sin has been taken away? You trust in the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Even as the text says, it's by that will, it is by the will of Jesus Christ that we are saved. So often our worry that our sin will come back and that it hasn't been dealt with is because we place the power of our salvation in our own will. And we see how often our will is pulled about back and forth by every wind of doctrine, everything that happens in the culture in our own lives. And we think there's no way that sin has been removed. There's no way that sin has been taken away because I am so tempted. But what this verse is saying is that it's not by the power of your will that salvation is accomplished, but rather is accomplished by the power of the will of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus continually states that He has come not to do His own will, but the will of His Father. In John 5, He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now this does not mean that Jesus desired to do something different, or that He reluctantly went along with the will of the Father. Rather, it means that He purposed to do the will of God the Father as the incarnate Son of God. That is to say, As a true, full human being, there was temptation towards avoiding God's will. Satan tempted Jesus to usurp and circumvent the will of God. He tempted Jesus to take the kingdom through force and not through obedience and sacrifice. And in his human nature, there was a real and true temptation towards such action. We see this reflected in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, the night before he would go to the cross. You can imagine in his human flesh, his human will was that he did not want to die on the cross. There we find this prayer that he called out to the Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In his human nature, he didn't desire pain and suffering. He did not want to undergo the physical torture of the cross, nor the spiritual suffering of God's wrath. And if he followed the desires of the flesh, 
he would have abandoned his course of obedience. But his prayer ends, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is how we know that sin has been removed. That Jesus submitted his fleshly will and desires to the will of God and offered himself obediently. He took up his cross as a course of submission, not like a dumb animal that blindly follows his executioner, nor like a prisoner dragged out to the gallows pleading for his life. Rather, it was the will of the Father to offer the prepared sacrifice of his Son, and the Son willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father and obediently offered himself on our behalf. This is how we know our sin has been removed. This is how we know the guilt of our sin will not return. Because as verse 10 says, we have been sanctifying through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you see, if we place our confidence that sin has been removed in our obedience, we will never have assurance that we have been saved. And therefore, the Word of God tells us, look to the obedience of Jesus Christ, for He submitted Himself to the Father. And if you trust in Him, though you continue to struggle with sin, that sin has been removed because Christ obeyed. But if it is true that sin has been removed, then why do we continue to struggle both with sin and the guilt of sin? Why does this consciousness of our sin still remain? How do we truly know that it's gone? Well, first, the removal of sin's guilt doesn't mean that we don't have to fight against sin as Christians. We remain in the brokenness of our flesh. We continue to struggle with temptation. And until we die, there will continue to be such a struggle. However, because of the work of Christ, because he was the perfect sacrifice, because he was the willing sacrifice, we can have assurance that sin has been removed and that the promise of Psalm 103 is true, that as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. We can have assurance that the declaration of Romans 8.1 is truly for us, which says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For through the prepared and willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the condemnation of sin has been removed. And you can now live in that freedom and in that hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come to you now at this time and we praise you that sin has been removed and that our salvation is not secured by our sacrifice and by our obedience, but rather through the sacrifice of your Son and His obedience to your will. Give us the grace to trust in what He has offered and what He has done, knowing that through your mercy, his sacrifice and obedience are accounted even as our own. 
and therefore we can walk in such freedom from sin. We pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen.